the text today is on uh, Jonah chapter 3. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, In forty days, Nineveh will be demolished. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed they fast and dressed in sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least. When word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he issued a decree in Nineveh. By order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster he had threatened, with, threatened them with, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Good to see y'all. Wow, y'all look good from this angle. I could only tell because I was in the front uh, yelling. I love I love to sing, and I love when the when the church sings. So it's fun getting to hear many of you sing. It's good for me to be here. I love the Huntsville area. It's become one of my favorite places to to visit. I get to visit here at least once a year with Leaders Collective. I've been uh, it's been a great weekend spending it with Joel. Joel's a superstar, like, but you all know that because you're here, right? And it's, he's not a superstar because he's a good preacher. He's just a great person, um, full of passion for the Lord. So it's been good for me uh, to be here. Also, it's good for me to be here because I don't know if you know this. It's not just that Joel um, participated in a cohort with uh, Leaders Collective and made some peers and gained some tools to be a healthy pastor as he was planning his church uh, for the last couple of years. But your church, your young church, church plant, barely two years old, partners with us financially. Not a lot, but you so into the organization that I get to help to lead so that people coming after Joel would be able to uh, get the tools to help them plant churches, you know, to have faith to plant a church, but also to be uh, healthy and enduring pastors as they're doing it. So, I mean, an accolade to you all for all that you're doing in this young stage uh, of, your, uh, of your church. Uh, so I'm glad to be here, particularly glad to be here as we uh, open the word and look at, look at Jonah. Um, here's the... Here's the difficulty of, of being a guest preacher and then being introduced. Like Joel, fortunately, he didn't go into my background or anything like that. Because sometimes, uh, you know, uh, an introductory person will, will say too much and then you have to live up to the hype. So fortunately, <laughs> Joel didn't say any of that stuff. So I'm just Jeff. I'm just I'm Jeff and I'm just going to talk a little bit uh, for I got 33 minutes left to talk. So no pressure. Uh, here's how I want to start today. I've been thinking about this a lot lately, just because of all the things going on in our country and really around the world. Who are the, who are the real heroes of our day? Who are the real heroes of our day? That's a question that I, I assume that many of you are pondering as well, even if you don't phrase it quite like that. Everybody loves a hero. It's, uh, it's what we look for in the books that we read. We crave it in the movies that we watch. 
And these are the games that kids play. There's a guy or gal that rises up to the occasion. They, they swoop in and they save your day and everything is awesome. Some of y'all don't know that. The Lego special, come on. Everything is awesome. They make everything awesome. That's what a hero does. But in the real world, where we live and work and play, who are those people that, that are the heroes that make, a, that make a difference? Who would you consider to be a hero? History has answers to that. We look at some of the icons of history. 16th president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, um, is important in terms of this weekend. He got our country through a civil war. Uh, he penned the words of the Emancipation Proclamation that freed and enslaved people. Two years later, uh, the Union Army uh, with the general comes into Galveston, Texas and tells those people two years later after the Emancipation Proclamation that slavery is over. So we thank him for that. A couple centuries later, JFK, John F. Kennedy, in his inauguration, says these words. He says, ask not what you can do for your country. That's not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And in those words, he's trying to elevate us collectively as a country to a higher level of service. Two years later, on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, Martin Luther King Jr. gives his I Have a Dream speech, a dream where, uh, where he envisioned a world where um, people were judged not by the basis of their skin color, but based on their participation in the country as citizens and their capacity to contribute, that, that, that people had equal jobs as well based upon their contribution to the, comp, uh, to the country. We've made a, lo a, a lot of strides in that, but we still have a long way to go. We were remiss uh, not to think about 9-11 and all that happened on uh, September 11th that year. One particular guy, Todd Beamer, uh, on, a, on a plane that got hijacked, once the passengers realized that their plane was taken over by terrorists, what did they do? They gathered together, came up with a plan. Todd Beamer said, hey, let's roll. And they caused that plane to crash in the middle of Pennsylvania, thwarting uh, the, the, the terrorist plan to, to crash into the White House. Well, what about the American military, of which I've served 20, 20 years, eight days of my life? Think of other, uh, other first responders, uh, public school teachers who've got us, uh, our kids through COVID, um, single moms, foster parents. These are like real heroes of our day. We look at the things going on in our country, uh, but also around the world. Uh, I think all, all of our eyes have been trained on Ukraine and the resolve of that country in, uh, in Russia's attack and the war against them. If we have any sense, we look at some of these people, and I could have named a lot of others, the things that, they've do, that they do, the things that they've done, and deep down inside, hopefully, some of you would say, man, I want to be just like that. I want to be like them. I want to be heroic, just like those kinds of people, which means you want to make a difference. I don't know about you, but I know this, is, this happens in my life. Sometimes I just look out at the landscape of things that are going on, and I just see how the world really works, and cynicism sets in. Ongoing wars, economic trouble, gas prices, like you be happy for four dollars and fifty fifty nine cent gas because in D.C. it's five oh one. That's like I, I said that to Joe like eight times. It's like you got five four dollar gas. It's crazy. <laughs> Divided government, racial tensions. We look at the real world and how it works and we get cynical. Cynicism says no one can make a difference in the world. And that, folks, is the sin of our day. To, to look at how the world really is and have little hope that, that you nor anybody else can really make 
a difference. Dorothy Sayers, British author, says, the sin of our age is not power-hungry materialism, as the liberals say, nor is it a, pessim a permissive spirit of lawlessness, as the conservatives say. The sin of our age is to believe in nothing, care for nothing, seek to know nothing, interfere with nothing. Therefore, those who commit this sin enjoy nothing, hate nothing, find purpose in nothing, live for nothing, and remain alive, for there is nothing for which it will die. So if Dorothy Sayers is right, and I think she is, here's what she's saying. She says, we commit the sin of the age when we see nothing bigger than our own, our own needs and interests. We commit the sin of the age when we give ourselves to nothing. And sure, I mean, as sure as you have eyes that can see, it is easy to see that it's not impossible to find true heroes in the, the age that we live in. At the same time, our cynicism is real because there's just difficulty living in the current world that we live in. And by definition, heroism is impossible if you're looking only to your own needs. Heroism, by definition, says you have to find a purpose, a right, a power, a truth, something bigger than you and live by that. Something that transcends everything, something that's worthy of your life and, if necessary, worthy of your death. And I think that's what it means to be a hero. That's what it means to make a difference. I think that's what we crave in the movies and the books that we read. Uh, that's what gets us excited. And so the question for us this morning as we're looking at Jonah 3 is, is there anything that grips your life, a power, a truth, something significant, such that if you lived by it, it would help you impact your community and uh, got through you make a difference? And we're going to see that, or at least try to see that in Jonah 3. Thanks to to Josh for reading the scriptures for us, so I won't rehearse that again. In Jonah 3, we get to see how God impacted a community, and that community is the city of Nineveh through this uh, unwilling prophet named Jonah. We get to see how Jonah made a difference, and Jonah is a, char a good character to do that because Jonah was not willing. He wasn't even trying to make a difference. He was actually trying to do the very opposite of what God called him to do. Uh, look down at verse 2. The author uses the word great in verse 2 to describe Nineveh. That's an interesting adjective to, to use to describe Nineveh, not because it was a great city, how we would determine great. Great here means large. It means capital because Nineveh was the capital of, uh, of Assyria, one of the greatest ancient cities in the world, about 600 miles north uh, northeast of Israel in what is uh, modern-day Mosul, Iraq. I spent a, a few years there. Nineveh was such a large, a great city, verse 3 says, it took a three days journey to get across. It's like driving across Texas right now. Nineveh was known for uh, its wickedness. Their leaders executed a very evil, wicked kind of warfare that, that they attempted to, to take over any city or nation that were tangential to them. And they did it by just decimating everybody in it and then taking everything that was of, 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 of wealth. And that's why God sent Jonah to Nineveh. Now, in chapter 3, we don't get really a lot of words from Jonah. He didn't say a lot. But what we do see in chapter 3 is Jonah was in the right place to make a difference. And I think that's the, that's the first thing that... that we need to, to take upon ourselves if we're going to impact our community, if we're going to make a difference. You've got to be in the right place at the right time for God to impact a community through you. I think the question is, how do you know if you're in the right place? I'll be honest with you. I don't know if where I live in the suburbs of D.C., uh, I don't know if where you live in the suburbs of this Huntsville metropolitan kind of an area are good examples of this. I mean, I, I, may, I may be making a mistake 
by saying that Decatur's uh, is, how do y'all even say that? Is, do y'all consider yourselves just Decatur people or Huntsvillians or, or whatever? You're like, all right, all right. That was, that was kind of defiant against, uh, against Huntsville. All right, I made some, some, some preconceived notions about who you guys are. Uh, it, all right. Here's the difficulty of living in places like where we live. Um, for those of you that even venture into Huntsville, like Huntsville is like top three places in the country to live right now. What? Okay. I stand corrected again. Right? Like, I know it's fun to come to, like, in D.C., lot, lots to do. People come there for the, the economic advancement. They come, just a lots to do, lots lot to see. And now people are coming to Huntsville for that as well. But there's one thing about living and existing in places that everybody else says, man, this is a great place to live. Once you live there, you kind of sort of want to be somewhere else. You ever notice that? Because there always are better places to live. And, and that's kind of what's going on here in this text. But the key for Jonah and, and therefore us is not being or living in a perfect place because there are no perfect places. The key is submitting to God in a place where he has you. And we see this in scripture. One of my favorite verses is Acts 17. And uh, Paul, on his second missionary journey, has gone into to Athens. And as he comes into Athens, he's immediately distressed because he sees all these idols, just statues everywhere. One in particular catches his attention. It says, to the unknown God. And from that, Paul sees these are very secular pagan people, but they're worshiping stones and things made of wood, idols, just wasting their lives away. And he gets a chance to go into the Areopagus, which is basically an arena, uh, an outdoor arena where the philosophers of the day would show up and do what philosophers do. They just philosophize, just talk about this and that. They invited Paul in and Paul opens up basically opening their eyes to this false worship that they were giving. And he gives them an idea of of who God is. And this is a great passage for you to read. I'm not going to read it here. Verse 26 is the one that really captures my eyes. He's trying to give them a perspective of this unknown God that they have that they that they should know about. He says, from one man, he this God has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries for which they live. It's a lot in that verse. There's a lot in this passage here. And so I would recommend to you to go back and read it. But what I take from that and the likes of Jonah coming into Nineveh is God and his sovereignty says to us, I've put you where you are. That where you are is where I want you to be. It doesn't mean that you're going to be there all the time. It doesn't mean that you always want to even be there. But where you are right now is where God would have you. Even sometimes in the in the wrong decisions and the wrong choices that you've made. Where you are is where God would have you, which means you have the opportunity, like Jonah, to agree with God and make the best of it. Someone said most people spend most of their time trying to enter a room they are already in. If I say that differently, we often attempt to leave the place we are destined to be in. What am I saying? Sometimes, maybe not forever, God has you somewhere to learn something, experience something, grow in something before he moves you on. And if we are so quick to undo what we think is a bad situation, circumstance for us, then we may miss the very thing God would have us to learn, grow, do in that very place. 
Here's what's interesting about Jonah. Jonah didn't impact Nineveh because he agreed with God and made the best of it. That's why he's a good example, because we live this life as well, don't we? In fact, in the first two chapters, you guys have already gone through this. We learned that Jonah didn't even want to go to Nineveh. Jonah knew God wasn't inviting him to Disney World to have a good time. He was given a hard task. He was giving an obstinate, evil, wicked people to go and speak a word of redemption to. And he just didn't want to do it. And so Jonah, in that regard, was a reluctant prophet. And only after a little coercion um, does he submit to God in a place where God had him. And here's my point. To make a difference, you have to, you have to acknowledge um, there is a place where I'm supposed to be and make the best of that. Secondly, you have to be becoming the right person. You have to be becoming the right person. We see this in Jonah as well. I think as Christians, we have a, a misnomer about our lives and what God is doing in our lives to make us who he wants us to be. I think we hear this idea of, of, of becoming who God wants us to be, and we superimpose on that becoming people who got to be perfect in every avenue of our lives. Do you have to be perfect for God to use you? Verse 1 says otherwise. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. That's like your mom or your dad yelling at you. Come to dinner. Ten minutes later, come to dinner. Why did they sell it? tell you the, first, uh, the second time? Because you ignored them the first time. Jonah is giving a command from God a second time. Why? Because he was grossly obedient, disobedient the first time. Jonah blew it. God says to Jonah in chapter 1, go to Nineveh. Jonah goes the opposite way. We see this in, in all over scripture. A notable figure in the New Testament will be the Apostle Peter who speaks before he thinks. In one occasion, I'm paraphrasing, uh, kind of embellishing, Jesus warns Peter, hey, Peter, watch your mouth because at some future point, you're going to say some things that you're going to regret. In fact, you're going to deny me. Jesus is betrayed by Judas. He's arrested. And in that moment, Peter, looking on at his friend, best friend, he denies Jesus. Not once, not twice, but three times. I think the Bible is telling us in incidents like this, Jonah, Peter, others, God uses our failure. I think it would be right to say failing God is not the final straw. When God is trying to work something in our character, when he's purposely giving us a task, put a task in front of us to do, a test, if you will, it's not if, but when you fail. Here's the, the kindness of God. He, he allows us the opportunity to just bring it around again and again so that we can not always fail, but perhaps have the opportunity to get what he is asking us to do right. I think there is something that there is to be learned here. The thing that we often don't want to hear is how God makes us the right person. And that's through suffering. I got one amen in the whole room. I know it. I'm a Christian, too. And that, that, that word suffering, that's like a cuss word to a Christian. Because we don't want to suffer. We, we buy into the success of the American dream, of the Western world, of being healthy, wealthy, wise. Uh, we don't want to go through heartache. We just want to be happy. But there's a theology of suffering in the Bible, and there's a theology of suffering surrounding the story of, of Jonah. In fact, in Matthew 12, Jesus, on the heels of the Sermon on the Mount, where he talks about the kingdom of God, he's going from city to city, teaching and healing. Uh, he happens to have a bunch of true disciples and religious people following him. On this occasion in Matthew 12, uh, religious leaders come up to him and ask Jesus to show them a sign. 
Verse 38, then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered them, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the, pro- the sign of the prophet Jonah. For Jonah was in the belly of a fish three days and three nights, and so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. And so these religious people asked Jonah for a sign, kind of crazy because they had been following Jesus, seeing him do signs all over the place. In fact, the scene before that, Jesus had been, Jesus had uh, the occasion where he came upon a man possessed by a, a, a demon, healed him of that. Man had been born blind, cured him of that. And yet they want a sign. It's not wrong to want a sign from Jesus. We all, we all want signs from God in one way or another. God, 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 show me a sign. I want to know that God exists. I want to know that God is out there. I really, really, really want to know that God is working on my behalf. Like whatever that moment is that like, God, I need your help right now. Come on, come on, do it. Come through, God. It's not wrong to, to want signs from God. I think the truth is, and here's what Jesus is saying, is if we, we often think that if only God would give me a sign, I'd believe him and I'd follow him. And really the opposite is true based on human nature. The truth is we don't and we won't. Jesus is telling the religious leaders that even if I give you a sign, you're not really going to do uh, the thing that God is calling you to do, to believe me and follow me. He's saying if you can't discern external signs of God working in the world, you're not likely to follow the signs of God working in your heart either. Romans 1 corroborates this. Romans 1 says, it's our sin that suppresses the truth of God. And so getting some impressive sign from Jesus is not going to affect our capacity to follow him. And so these religious people, they want a sign, a power sign. Show us how great you are by the miracles you do, Jesus, and we'll believe who you are and we'll believe what you say you've come to do. And Jesus is saying, hey, if you want to know me, if you want to know who God is, who my father is, it has to come through weakness. And weakness here would be defined as you submitting yourself to see the things that Jesus is doing and to hear the things that he's actually saying. So Jesus responds specifically to these religious people. Hey, I'm going to lay in a grave three days and three nights. And with that, he's saying your sign is that I'm coming in weakness. I'm not coming as the Messiah that you, would, that you anticipate or that you expect. I'm coming in weakness, not in power. And we see this in Jonah's life. Think about Jonah from what you've learned so far. Jonah was a mess. Chapter two, he's sucked up by this fish in the belly of a whale three days, seaweed wrapped around his, around his body, swimming in gastric fish juices. I mean, it, that's got to be nasty. And three days later, the fish vomits Jonah out on the land where he's supposed to be, the, the, the coast of Nineveh. I imagine jo, uh, Jonah looks so bad, smells so horrible, that at the sight of him and the smell of him, the Ninevites were like, all right, uncle, like, if, say what you got to say and then leave. We'll just, we'll just obey God. Actually, that's not what happened. There's, a, there's little in this story that suggests Jonah is in the right place, even in this moment. There's little in Jonah's character in this moment that suggests he's becoming the right person. But here's my point. Jonah does mirror Jesus. He mirrors Jesus in that the way to know God is through weakness. Jonah had to suffer. God had to make him suffer. God has to wound Jonah to make him useful. And here's why. It's because suffering makes you a servant. Now, I don't, I, want, I don't want to scare you with this word suffering because some of you are probably thinking differently when you think about suffering. You're thinking the Apostle Paul in suffering, like being shipwrecked, 
or um, bitten by a snake, uh, being beaten um, with the, the whip and the lashes that Paul went through. Actually, the suffering that some of you, uh, that the, the suffering that God wants some of you to experience is just the suffering of getting your house dirty because you invited people in. Or the, the suffering of the, the anxiety of going across the street and getting to know your neighbor. Or the suffering of going out of your way to help a person who doesn't have a car to get to point, you know, to point B from wherever you are. I, I think that's, that's the more the suffering that God would have us Christians in the 21st century do. He's not going to just have us beaten. Not in today's day. Not all of us. Suffering makes you useful. Here's what suffering does. It gets our eyes off of ourselves and, it, and onto God and his purposes. And so in that right, suffering can be a gift for many of us. This is crazy verse. In Philippians chapter one, Paul is writing to a church that he planted 10 years later, and he's encouraging them and all the difficulties that he's had in life, the suffering that he has experienced. He's thanking them for their support, love, prayers for him all these years. And he says in verse uh, chapter one, verse 29, for it has been granted to you, Philippian church, it has been granted to you Christians on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Suffering gets your eyes off of yourself, your problems, your issue, and it puts it onto God and his agenda for your lives. I think many of us Christians have the idea that, man, if God's going to use me, I got to have my life together. And I think if Paul were here, he'd say the same thing he's saying to the church at Philippi. No, it's just the opposite. I think a lot of us think that if God is going to use me, I need to be intelligent. I need to have all these kind of abilities and talents. A life that's squeaky clean. And if Paul were here talking to us like he's talking to the Philippians, he would say, no, you don't need all that. God is not interested in your ability. He is really interested in your availability. God wants service. And I think God gets us as servants by introducing a little suffering into our lives. And of course, hear me. I'm not saying you're going to get beat, put out of your house. Uh, exile from whatever the, the, the life that you're living here in Decatur, Georgia. I'm saying God's going to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that too. I'm sorry, guys. I didn't mean it. That was demeaning. Soap in my mouth. Decatur. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God wants... Yeah, yeah. All right. God gets us a service by suffering. I'm suffering up here. Hear this. First, God changes the person. Then he impacts the community. Did you hear that? First, God changes the person, then he impacts the community. Let me say it one more time. New Eden Church, first God changes you, then through you, by the help of the Holy Spirit, he changes and impacts the community. It, you got to get the order right. And the process by which God changes us is called sanctification. You guys know that. It's the process by which God makes us holy. Theologically, this really is what this, this is all I mean by becoming the, the, the right person. It's sanctification. I like Wayne Grudem's definition. Sanctification is a process, a progress, a progressive work of God and man, whereby he makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our, actually, in our actual lives. Note the thing that Wayne Grudem is pointing to here. There's an active thing in us. We don't just pray and do anything else. Perhaps you heard the story of a man who, uh, whose community flooded 
flooded so much the water was rushed almost like Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. So the, 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 the levee broke, flood is going all the way through the communities. He had no choice but to go to his roof and then he, he prays. Personal faith, he prays, God deliver me. Uh, pretty soon, a guy in a John boat comes by, waves, hey, come, I'm, I'm here to save you. I'm here to deliver you. Come on down. He says, oh, no, that's okay. God's going to save me. Uh, two hours later, water continuing to rise. Another John boat comes by. Friend of his, hey, come on down. I'm here to help you get down and take you to safety. Don't mind me. I prayed and God's going to help me. Two hours later, water continuing to rise. Helicopter shows up. Paramedic lowers down that little thing. He's going to put him in there and haul him back up. He says, You know what happened, right? He, he drowned. He did not make it. So he gets to heaven because he's a Christian. First thing he wants to talk, he wants to talk to God. God, what happened in that flood? I thought you were going, I was determined to believe that you were going to save me. He says, dude, I sent you two John boats and a helicopter. It would, I mean, it's easy to think that I'm being heretical and would suggest that God doesn't answer our prayers. I'm not trying to say that. God is gracious. He, he does answer prayer. We could spend all afternoon talking about that kind of stuff. But I am suggesting that oftentimes God uses people. The miracles that he performs in today's day, he uses people. He, and he works with us in the process. Firstly, you have to be in the right place, which is wherever you are. I hope you heard that. The being in the right place is wherever God has you right now. And he wants you just to agree with him and make the best of it. Secondly, you have to be becoming the right person, which is the process of sanctification. That starts at, uh, at salvation, and it lasts for the rest of your life, right? Until you go to heaven. Slow drip. Thirdly, you have to have the right message. We see this in verse 4. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. In 40 days, Nineveh will be Demolished. According to the text, Jonah only says eight words. I'm not a theologian. I'm just a pastor. I'm going to suggest to you Jonah had a few more words than just these eight words. Why is that? Because these are Assyrians. They're pagan. They're far from God. They may have heard faint rumors of who the Israelite God was, but they knew nothing about him. So Jonah's saying just those four words of judgment aren't going to get them to change their mind about who God is. He had something more to say. I'm going to suggest that the more that he had to say was the complete message of redemption. And the complete message of redemption has, has bad news and then it has good news. The bad news is the law. The good news is the gospel. The law says we're more sinful and wicked than we would ever care to believe. You guys heard that before? And that's the, basically the message of verse, of verse 4. God has had it with you, Ninevites. Like, you're, you're a toast. You think you're all-powerful? You think you're the greatest superpower on the earth? God's going to bring you down, you wicked, sinful people. That's what Jonah is saying in verse 4. That's what the law says to us. The law is the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, the, the moral law code that doesn't go away. Jesus truncates it in the New Testament, love God. Love people. Have you ever noticed we don't do either either of those well? Well, you can read it in the Old Testament. You can believe Jesus in the New Testament, regardless of how long or short you make it. We don't do those well. We don't follow God well. Here's what the law is is intended to do. It's intended to remind us of God's standard. Romans three, Paul says, we've all sinned and fallen short of what God intends for us to be and do. 
a lot of times we make the mistake of not comparing ourselves to God and his word. We compare ourselves to other people. Well, I'm not doing what you're doing. Well, look at that. Like, that's awful. I'm not doing that. God doesn't intend us to compare ourselves to other people and what they are doing or not doing. He intends to us to abide by the standard of his word. The law tells us we're sinful, that we should be judged. We have nowhere else to look but to God for uh, to get us out of the sinful mess that we are in. He says later, Romans 6, the wages of our sin is death. That the sin that we commit, they deserve eternal separation from God. So Jonah says, Ninevites, you are in trouble with a capital T. That's how I would have said it growing up in Durham, North Carolina. But that's also what the Bible says about you and me. And the trouble that we are in because of our sin, there's only one remedy. And the remedy is faith and repentance. Faith toward God and repentance towards the things that we're doing, moving from our sin to him. Look at how the king responded. I'm not going to read all these verses. I'm going to read verse 5. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, dressed in sackcloth, from the greatest to the least of them. The king basically himself demonstrated the, the repentance needed. And by verse 10, look what we read. God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster he had threatened with them with. And he did not do it. What happened? The gospel happened, right? You have a wicked people. The law says you're more sinful and wicked than you care to believe. But the gospel, this unwritten part of Jonah's message, that probably was there in his words. It's God who redeems. He tells you that you're more loved and accepted than you could ever possibly hope. The first and second parts of redemption are absolutely critical to us and our lives with, with God. The first part of the message of redemption is, is law, which points to our sin and with the Spirit's help drives us to repentance. And it's the second part that says we're more loved and accepted than we could ever possibly hope. New Eden Church, that's, that's the remedy for you too. You, as good as you are, are more sinful than you ever know or believe. But in the cross of Jesus, you're more accepted and loved than you can ever possibly fathom. Which means... We don't need to look for affirmation in all the things we look for affirmation for. We don't need to uh, get good grades or uh, depend on the success of our jobs to make us feel good. We don't need the semblance of a perfect life to get people to like us. We don't need to put on nice clothes or get your hair fixed so people will, uh, will notice you. Uh, now, we live in America, Western culture. Do those things. <laughs> but you have that in God. You don't have to live it because you, you, you have it in God. Not because of the stuff that you do that makes you feel and look good. You have it because of the cross. Jesus died, spilled his blood so that you would have those things in him. And that's what Jonah says to Nineveh. And the whole city was changed. He impacted the whole community. Chapter 4, when you get to there, 120,000 people whose lives were changed because of this redemptive act. Jonah reluctantly coming and telling these people, hey, you're wicked, but the God I serve, he wants to love you, even in your wickedness. So repent. And they did it. And they're, I mean, the whole community was changed. And that is not an anomaly of history of, of thousands of years ago. We've seen this even in our country. In the Great Awakening, mid-18th century, um, 50,000 people came to faith. 150 churches like yours were planted around 1741. 
So when the gospel truly is involved, a whole society can be transformed. Why? Because of people being in the right place, becoming the right people, articulating the message that God has given them to articulate. We learn from Jonah that God's goal of uh, goal with his people is redemption. And who and what does God redeem? He redeems people, he redeems cities, and he redeems nations. And so we have to be in the right place, becoming the right persons with the right message because, because God loves people. He loves messed up people. Aren't you glad? Because some were such a, I mean, I, some, of the, some of us are still messed up. And that can and should happen here, right in your midst. It should happen in your lives because you're the key. It should happen where you live, where you work, where you play, wherever you go. What could God do through and in you if you'll just let him? And for those of you that might say, man, I don't know if I want God to do all that through, stuff through me. I'm scared. I'm not articulate. I'm not smart. I'm too busy. I would say so is everybody else that God uses. I'll finish with this. Has the word of the Lord come to you like it did to Jonah? Is God speaking to you about being in the right place, about becoming the right person and having the right message? It turns out that the real heroes of our age aren't the icons of history. They're surely not the Marvel characters that we actually like to go see and swoop in and, and, and save the day. The real heroes of our day, those that really make a difference, they're simply the ones that say yes. Let's pray.